Good morning. Cannot hear you at all through those masks. I'm going to assume you said good morning back. Okay. This morning, I would like to talk about making decisions. And I'd like to start by telling you about how I made one of the biggest decisions of my life. I met my husband here at Covenant, and we dated and broke up, dated and broke up, quasi-dated, super broke up, and then got back together again before getting married. And by the time we got back together again for the last time, I was pretty sure I loved him and wanted to be with him. You should not date someone that many times if you're not. But as I was driving to get proposed to, because for all that he is, he is not subtle, so I knew it was coming, I didn't know what I wanted to say. So I thought, okay, let's think about this rationally. If I say no, he will probably never ask again and we'll be done. But if I say yes, I can always back out if it feels wrong. So I said yes. And I will tell you that surprisingly, when I told him that's how I made the decision after we got married, it did not go well. But that's another story. I was like, I married you, what's the big deal? It's, it's fine. But what was I basically saying there? I'm not sure what to do, and I don't wanna to have to make this choice yet. Saying yes enabled me to keep both options open. And I've heard of studies that have shown actually that in video or computer games, people are more likely to make choices that keep all their options open, even when they know that this will result in a decrease of points or moving backwards in the game. So in other words, they're willing to take a penalty simply to keep their options open and will avoid making a choice even when doing so will cost them. And this is because making choices is terrifying. It's difficult. Figuring out what to do, what's the best decision, or in Christian circles as we talk about it, figuring out where the Lord is leading is hard. I mean, it's easier in some more obvious situations, in moral decisions, you know, should I cheat on this test or not? Not. The answer is always not. But should I choose this major or that one? Should I take this internship or work at home? Should I date this person? Is it right to address this situation with my friend or my parent or my family member or should I keep quiet? Should I take this job, make this move, speak up on this, volunteer here, use my time this way or not? And so on and so forth. We fear getting it wrong, and we fear messing up our lives, and we fear missing where God was leading. And sometimes it feels like the stakes are so high, the decision will change everything, and we don't know what to do. Singer-songwriter David Wilcox encapsulates this feeling really well in the intro to his song, Hold It Up to the Light. He says, it's a big decision. What if I do my best, but I just make some slip? What if I set my life off in the wrong direction and it's never the same afterwards? What if it was just some sort of tricky thing, like a game show host sort of a god? Well, let's see which one you've chosen. Oh no, wait, what did I say? Door number one, I meant door number two. What did I say? And we often feel that way. So what do we do? Well, hopefully if you're a believer, you ask yourself, what does God want me to do? How do I follow him in this decision? And we ask it in all sorts of ways with all sorts of language. Where is he leading? How can I figure out what he wants? What's he teaching me? What was I supposed to learn from that experience? And that's good to ask, what does God want of me? But what I've found is that under that question, there are usually some assumptions that tend to just subtly slip in. 
assumptions about God and what he's like, and assumptions about what following him looks like and what he requires of us. So assumptions about him and his character, assumptions about how he's expecting us to do this whole following thing. Assumptions which basically boil down to following God is a giant set of mind games. He's a cosmic game show host or test giver waiting to see what we'll do. He likes to set spiritual challenges and obstacle courses that will cause us to grow. And our job is to become so good at these games that we can follow him super closely and master the challenges, make the right decision, and not mess it up. Our job's to figure it out. But is that really what God is like? Is that how he leads his people? Does he test like this? Because testing is a thing in scripture. And are our decisions a way that he tests us? Is this what the following process in trying to discern his will looks like? This morning, we will look at two passages to see if this is what God's character is in the midst of testing or decision-making, and if this is what he expects of us. Do we find him to be a slightly tricky test giver? Is that his attitude and why he does what he does? And does he expect us to be able to figure it out and set challenges for us to master? Okay, spoiler, the answer is no. But let's take a look at these passages and see how vastly different the picture of the Bible is from our assumptions. The first we'll look at is Judges 6, which is the story of Gideon and his fleece. This passage has somehow become the go-to Christian passage for talking about decision-making. I wasn't sure if I should move forward in this job, so I put out a fleece. And here's how we tend to tell it. Gideon isn't sure what God wants him to do. So he puts a fleece out at night and asks God, if this is really your will, would you make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry? And God does. And then to confirm, Gideon asks that instead, the next night would God make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet? And God does. So Gideon knows what God wants him to do, and he goes forward. And that sounds good, right? Makes sense? But there's two problems with reading the story that way. First, this is not even what happens in the passage, as we'll see in a minute. And second, treating this passage as a paradigm for our lives is just bad hermeneutics. Description of how Gideon chose to make a decision is not prescription for us to do the same. As a certain Bible professor here says, narrative, a story, is not necessarily normative or normal for our lives. Just because Gideon does it and he's sort of a good guy does not necessarily mean, hey, everybody do what Gideon did here. Because here's what actually happens. An angel of the Lord visits Gideon and tells him, you will deliver Israel. Gideon asks for a sign that this is really from the Lord, which the angel gives by doing a miracle. And Gideon says, now I know it's really from the Lord. He's convinced. The Midianites, the enemy, gather against Israel, and the spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon, and he calls together an army to go against them. And then we get to the fleece passage, and listen to how Gideon even phrases what he's doing with the fleece. Remember, he's been told by an angel of the Lord that this will happen. The angel has already given him a sign it's for real, and he's got the spirit of the Lord. And he says to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And then when he asks for the opposite the following night, he says, 
Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. How he talks. As you have said, he mentions it twice. He already knows very well what God has told him to do. And in the second request, he knows he's pushing it a bit. Please let me do this once more. This is not about that time Gideon had to discern God's will, but that time God told Gideon what to do repeatedly, and Gideon kept saying, but I need to be really sure. Can you tell me one more time? And what's funny is that in the next chapter, when God again tells Gideon to do something, he doesn't even wait for him to ask for a sign. He just goes ahead and gives him one. When he tells him to go and fight, he follows it right up with, but if you're afraid, go down to the camp and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So Gideon sneaks down and he overhears this prophetic dream about him winning the battle, and then he's ready to go and fight. God just preemptively strikes against Gideon's habitual sign request asking and says, here, let me give you a sign because I know you're scared. So interestingly enough, instead of a passage which is often portrayed as what to do when you're unsure of God's will, we see a passage that is, man continues to ask God for signs even when he's point blank told him repeatedly to his face specific direct instructions and God graciously gives them over and over because he knows the man is scared. So let's consider, what do we learn about the character of God in this? And what does he expect of his follower? Does it match those assumptions we can have about God and how we should be following him? So what's expected of the follower? Is it the follower's job to discern through all the tricky signs what he's supposed to do or figure out how to ask for a fleece and then and only then move forward in confidence? No, he's told very clearly what to do and it's confirmed many times over. And the character of God, is he tricksy? No, he's really clear. Is he reluctant to tell Gideon what to do? No. And not only that, he's unbelievably gracious. Not only is he patient with Gideon's anxiety, he even volunteers to give him that sign in the next chapter. So what's on display in this story is God's kindness towards and clear leading of the man who will deliver his people and that man's anxiety and fear in the process. It's not a mind game and it's not unclear. And it's not about trying to figure out what God is up to. What God is, does is surprising and unexpected and unpredictable, but he doesn't play mind games and he's not tricky. So the second passage we'll look at is Exodus 15 through 17. And this is a passage in which God actually does test his people. There are three stories in a row with the same pattern where the Israelites grumble against God because they don't have food or water in the wilderness and he provides. And I'll just summarize quickly what it says this morning. Chapter 15, they grumble because there's no water. And God has Moses throw a log in the water, which makes it sweet or drinkable. And then the story concludes with this. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer chapter 16. They grumble again, this time about no food, and God sends manna. 
And he tells them to only gather a day's worth at a time and two days worth on Friday so they have enough for the Sabbath the next day. And this is what God says about it to Moses. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then chapter 17. Once more, the people grumble about not having water and God tells Moses to strike a rock to make it flow with water. But what's interesting here is that it flips. It goes from God testing the people to the people testing God. Verse seven concludes the story saying, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, where's this God who's supposedly taking care of us? Why hasn't he provided? Prove you're here. So several interesting things are happening in this passage. First, what's the test? Or what do they have to do to pass the test, so to speak? This is the what does God expect of his people question. And if you look back at the passage, this is what he says. Keep my commandments. Do what's right in my eyes. Listen to my voice. Walk in my law. Not figure out what to do in really confusing times. Just do what's right. Follow what I've clearly said. If I say gather a day's worth, gather a day's worth. If I say gather two days worth, gather two days worth. This is not rocket science. It's not tricky or unclear. Test taking is not about the test taker's ability to figure out the test, but about their heart posture. Do they wanna follow him and do what he told them to do? Will they simply obey what he's clearly said? But second, we can look at the context of his testing to help us answer the question, what is the character of God like in testing? Three times in a row, boom, 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 God provides miraculously. Not to mention the previous miracles he's just done in delivering them out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. And he provides miraculously amidst extensive grumbling. Grumble is actually repeated 10 times in these chapters, mostly in chapter 16. And not just grumbling, but they actually also accuse God saying, you brought us out here to die. And he provides miraculously even while they test him, while they say, prove your God. So when we ask, what does God expect of his people when he tests, and what's his character like? We see yet again, there are no mind games. It's not this tricky thing. Like with Gideon, he's this gracious God, miraculously providing in the midst of grumbling, their apparent inability to remember he's just rescued them like 10 times, and even of them accusing and testing him. And what is this test? Just follow me. Just walk in my ways. Listen to my voice. But there's one more layer to God's testing that's really interesting to note here, and this is his purpose. Maybe you noticed it when I read the excerpts from the passages. Why does God say he's doing it? He says his purpose is to see if they'll walk in his way or not. Okay, but wait. Think about that. God needs to give a test in order to know something? Isn't he, what's that word, omniscient? So what's going on here? 
I've thought about tests and their purpose a lot more in the last couple of years because I re-entered the world of education as a teacher for the first time two years ago, and it gave me a whole new perspective on what a test is. As a student, I had viewed tests as a challenge to be conquered, something on which the teacher would put deviously worded questions that you had to read super carefully, and they were just waiting to see if you could figure it out, you know, evil maniacal laugh in the background, waiting to see what you would do. Me versus the test me versus the teacher even, and I would triumph. But as a teacher, my view of tests totally shifted. I really wanted my students to succeed. When I gave them a study guide, it really had everything on it that they needed to know. And I would rejoice when they got the right answers. I mean, like a crazy person alone grading in my office, you know, little Jimmy, you picked B, because I was so excited that they had ingested and understood the material. I was looking forward to see, do you get it? Have you understood? As the tester, my desire was not to trick or trap them or even to just assess them, but still to teach, to help them learn and to rejoice when they answered correctly. I recently talked about this with an educator friend of mine and she affirmed that this is indeed supposed to be the purpose of a test. It's not just a measure of what you know, but actually a tool for deepening learning. When you take a test, your retrieval of the information you need strengthens the synapses in your brain. Being asked the question, having to pause and consider the answer, remembering it correctly pushes the information deeper down into you. The test is not just a measure or even a revealer of what you know, but an actual teaching tool that is a practicing of what you know, a movement from the head to the heart. So with all that in mind, what is our omniscient God's purpose in testing? He is giving an opportunity for deeper learning, a practiced enactment of what is in the heart. It's an invitation for a closer walk with him. He doesn't need a test to know what's in their hearts. The test is for them. Which is exactly what he says in other places in scripture, that he's a gracious God who doesn't test to trick, but with love. When this is referenced in Deuteronomy 8, Moses says that God is the one who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. This is a thing of love. It's not tricky. And it's not because he expects us to constantly be playing mind games and endlessly overanalyzing everything. That simply is not his character. And it's simply not what he expects of us. All right. That's all very well and good, you may say. God loves me. He's kind. He doesn't expect me to figure it all out. And even his tests are opportunities to greater experience his love. But do you know I still have to make real decisions? And you have not in any way laid out a decision-making flowchart or a how-to that is going to help me with that. And that is true. But think about how it reframes our fears about decision-making, discerning God's will, and figuring out what he's up to. I don't need to look for the secret signs and worry constantly that I'm going to miss them. I don't need to fear that I'm going to choose the wrong door and end up where I'm not supposed to be outside of God's will for my life. I don't have to worry that he's setting tests for me and that if I was really a follower or if I really loved him or if I'd really prayed enough, I'd be moving through life with this utter surety of what to do every second of every day. Because these fears 
about making decisions have so much more to do with what we idolize than they do with what the character of God and what his gentle leading of us is actually like. If I'm afraid I'm going to miss the right decision, that I will miss out on God's best for me, that I've only I'd done X instead of Y, then what does that really reveal? What is it I'm really wanting? I want a certain outcome more than I want anything else. Idol, life circumstances. I want to be free of the pain of regret. Idol, assurance, confidence. I want to know I was faithful and acted faithfully so that if things go horribly wrong, I can know it wasn't my fault and it wasn't my problem. Idol, me being right, me being okay. I want to choose the option that's going to make me happiest or bring me the most blessing. Idol, comfort. I want to choose the option that's wisest and best and that accounts for everything. Idol, pride, power. It's not bad to want to do things well or want certain outcomes or desire to make good choices that bring blessing instead of death. But do these sound like God's ultimate goal for us? Try to be happy, to make your life about avoiding regret, to have okayness based out of the good choices you have made, and set your heart most on the outcome you think will be best. All of that is about us, putting us in charge and giving us the power. It has nothing to do with him or what he expects of us. Recently, my husband and I had to make a decision about whether or not we would pursue a certain opportunity, and it was something that would affect just about every area of our lives, where we lived, where we went to church, who we spent time with, how our children spent their time, and who with, our mental and emotional bandwidth, I mean, so on. And it was honestly the first time that I intentionally approached a decision saying, I'm going to assume, God, you are not tricky, and sending me secret signs to figure out about whether or not I should do this. I'm not going to overanalyze why you're doing this. I'm going to move forwards, trusting you, because I, I think this is where you're leading. And I am going to assume that you will show me clearly if I am disobeying. I will just keep asking and not worrying. And I will tell you, it was lovely. It was not stress-free, but we just constantly prayed, please, Lord, would you shut the door clearly if you want us to stop? And eventually he did. And then I had another opportunity to trust he wasn't tricky and expecting me to play mind games because when an opportunity shuts, we want to know, well, why did you do that? You must have been trying to teach me something. I will figure it out. Looking back over it, what exactly that was. Which initially sounds pious, but is actually ridiculous. Are you really saying that you could ever know the fullness of exactly why the God who weaves all of history together with tiny little moments and huge national events did exactly what he did? Of course he's teaching you and using it in your life. But our job is not to endlessly analyze as though we could figure out what exactly was God's purpose in this for me or what problem in me was this experience set to fix, but simply to say, well, what have I learned? And there's a world of difference between those two things. One demands God reveal his purposes to me or worries that he will somehow refuse to teach me if I don't discern exactly what he was doing for me. And the other has an open hand simply saying, what's something you gave me in this experience? How can I walk more faithfully now as a result? So when you make a decision, you can have confidence in God. 
that he's not leaving you alone to figure this out. It's not a challenge with secret signs. That's not his character or his goal for you or how he operates. He's working with you, so very with you, not against you, and you can rest in that. Not in a, I can just do whatever I want kind of way because God is big enough and strong enough to use it regardless of how dumb a choice I make. Of course not. You must still examine your own heart, follow his commands, and most certainly humbly ask others for help. This doesn't free you of what your actual responsibility is, which is trying to follow faithfully. But you can rest because you are the follower and ask for help. Pray and pray some more. Not because you pray and then bam, a sign, or pray and then bam, peace, but because you pray, pray again, and then just do what you know to be right, moving forwards as best you can in humility. And this is all Jesus asks us to do. I'll close with this. On the last night on his life, this is what he told his disciples. He said in John 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way. And this is how it is with decisions so often. I find my words echoing Thomas's. Lord, I do not know where you're going. How on earth am I supposed to know the way? And Jesus just says, I am the way, me, in the way to God the Father, in the small decisions you make every day. I'm always the way. What you need to know, you will know. I'm not tricky. This isn't a game. You can walk in full trust that I'm not trying to pull one over on you or that my testing is a battle of wits to see if you can figure it out. Rest in the character of God. Rest in his leading. Rest knowing that even in the most confusing of decisions, you move forward simply trusting him. He is the way, and that is how it is supposed to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are not tricky. We thank you that you don't pull the rug out from under us. We thank you that even your tests are opportunities to know your love more deeply. Would you help us learn those things? Would you remind them of us of them when we are scared? And it's in your name I pray. Amen.